Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. My name is Dr. Harlan Betts, and this eighth season of Wisdom from Above is focused on the book of Revelation. The beloved disciple John has been banished to a Roman penal colony on the Isle of Patmos. While there, God reveals to John the things that he is to record in a book, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has three basic sections. Chapter 1 refers to the past and has a vision of Christ in all his purity and power. Chapter 2 and 3 refer to the present and has the letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 22 refer to the future and have things what takes place after the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the new heaven and the new earth. We are presently in the second section that deals with the letters to the seven churches. Today we are looking at the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I want to begin with a story. The parents were in the auditorium for the presentation. A little girl was up on the platform. She was supposed to say a few lines, but she was frozen with fear, and she could not remember what she was supposed to say. Her mother, near the front row, was agonizing just as much as her daughter. Finally, the mom tried to help her daughter out by saying the first line. The mom whispered, I am the light of the world. The little girl suddenly relaxed, smiled, and loudly proclaimed, My mother is the light of the world. (laughs) Uh, I like that story. I like it because Jesus, who declared, I am the light of the world, had also said to his followers, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and they may glorify your father in heaven. So Jesus wanted us to reflect his light as believers. In the book of Revelation, Jesus pictures the churches as lampstands. They were to provide light in the midst of a crooked and dark world. The Church of Philadelphia was doing that very thing. The Church of Philadelphia was letting her light shine. Let me take just a moment to look back at the five previous churches. The Church of Ephesus was enduring. Sound in doctrine, but... Losing, walking away from their first love. The church of Smyrna was suffering under intense persecution. The church of Pergamum was permissive. And the church of Thyatira was tolerating. The church of Sardis was sorry. And now we come to the church of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is faithful. This church walks closely with God. Now let's check out this letter to the church of Philadelphia. It begins in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 where it talks about the city. It's 
a letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is not the Philadelphia that is in Pennsylvania. This is the Philadelphia that was in Asia Minor. Philadelphia, as you probably know, means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia was prosperous because of her strategic location and because of her great production. Philadelphia was founded around 140 B.C. by King Atlas Philadelphus of Pergamon. The name Philadelphus was given to him as a nickname because of the great love he had for his brother. Atlas Philadelphus intended Pergamum to be a center of missionary activity for the Greek way of life. Philadelphia was sitting on the edge of Catechacomene, a district of Lydia where volcanoes were active and earthquakes were frequent. An unusually severe earthquake took place in AD 17, and it destroyed 12 cities in the great Lydian Valley. And Philadelphia suffered greatly. But was even more devastated by the aftershocks, which continued for years. The Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar helped rebuild Philadelphia. And in his honor, the city changed its name to Neo Caesarea, the new Caesar. Like the city of Philadelphia, The Church of Philadelphia was to be fruitful. The Church was to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Like the city of Philadelphia, the Church of Philadelphia was to be a missionary center, but not for the Greek way of life, but for Jesus' way of life, to let the light of Christ shine. Like the residents of the city, the members of the Church had been given the opportunity of experiencing new life by a king. For the city, the king rebuilt the city. For the church members, Jesus gave them new life and a new name. Next in verse 7, we see the character of Christ. And in, in this section, Jesus usually draws on the vision of Christ in chapter 1 to describe himself. But here, he uses other titles. Four other titles. He calls himself the Holy One. This speaks of his purity in his character and conduct. He will never be corrupted by evil or selfishness. Second, the True One. This speaks of his integrity in his words and walk. He will never be corrupted by deceit or falsehood. Third, the one having the key of David. This speaks of his authority in his position. He is the Lord. One day every knee will bow before him. One day he will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign over not only Jerusalem, Not only Israel, but the entire world. And finally, he's called the opener and closer of doors. This speaks of his sovereignty in his actions. We don't have to bust down doors to get where God wants us to go. 
He opened doors no man can shut, and he closes doors no man can open. We just have to walk through the ones he opens for us. Next, we see the commendation of the church in verses 8 to 10. And each commendation is uniquely linked to this description that Jesus has just given of himself. The first thing he says, he says, I know your works and I have set before you an open door. Well, he, he called himself the opener and closer of doors. I've set before you an open door. And the emphasis in verse 8 is on the utilization of opportunities. He says, you have little strength. They were small in number, limited in finances, lacking in prestige, but strong in God's strength and strong in the power of God's spirit. Then Jesus says, you've kept the Lord's word. You've kept my word. They kept his word in their doctrine, and they kept his word in their actions. They were believers and doers, faithful in teaching, obedient in responding, committed in everything. The Church of Philadelphia not only knew the truth, the Church of Philadelphia practiced the truth. And then he says, you have not denied my name. There was no silent refusal, no public retreat, no personal shame. They stood up for Jesus. They did not deny their faith. After the utilization of opportunities, taking advantage of this open door, we see the transformation of enemies in verse 9, where he says, I will make your enemies bow. He speaks about the claim of the enemies. This synagogue of Satan is a group of Jews claiming to be people of God, but though they have a physical connection with Abraham, they do not have the spiritual connection. Jesus once told the spiritually blind scribes and Pharisees who claimed to be Abraham's children, you are of your father the devil. These unsaved Jews were persecuting the converted Jews. But after talking about their claim, Jesus talks about their conversion. He says they will bow in this life due to their conversion or in the next life when they kneel before God at their judgment. I believe this passage is saying that God will give these persecuted believers an open door to witness to the persecutors. Because of the love and witness of these mostly Jewish Philadelphian believers, many of these persecutors would come to know Jesus as their Messiah. And then they would fall down at the feet of these believers and acknowledge that God does indeed love them and that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. God opened this kind of door for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar. God opened this kind of door for Paul and Silas before the Philippian jailer. And God may open doors for you and for me to reach out to those who oppose us. So we have the utilization of opportunities, verse 8, the transformation of enemies, verse 9, 
And then the exemption from the hour of trial in verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial because you've kept the word of my endurance. I believe this is the best translation of this passage. It's the most literal translation of this passage. You have kept the word of my patience, or you've kept the word of my endurance. Well, what is the word of Jesus' endurance? Well, according to Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus endured the cross. According to Hebrews 12, 3, Jesus endured such hostility of sinners against himself. Enduring the cross, despising the shame, becoming sin for us, bearing our sins in his own body on the cross, being mocked and beaten and spit upon and crucified. Jesus endured that cup of sin and that cup of suffering to pay the penalty for our sins. The Philadelphian church kept this message of Jesus' sacrificial death, Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. The Philadelphian believers stayed true to the message of Jesus' willing endurance of the cross, the word of Jesus' endurance. Even though the message of the cross is foolishness to many, they kept that word. Therefore, because the Philadelphian believers believed the gospel was true and stayed true to the gospel, the Lord promised to keep them out of the hour of this trial. Now, what does that mean? Out of the hour of the trial. There are two distinct views about the trial or tribulation spoken of in this verse. The first view is that it refers to a past event, a historical time of testing. In A.D. 98, Trajan became emperor and his policy of persecuting Christians was followed in the entire empire for over a century. According to some historians, the Church of Philadelphia remained untouched and unharmed by those persecutions. Now that's possible. But I prefer view two. It refers to a future event, the Great Tribulation, predicted in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, predicted in Daniel 12, verse 1, predicted in Matthew 24, verses 14 to 21. Now, why do I think this refers to the tribulation? Well, notice first, they will be kept out of this hour of trial. It's not a promise to be kept in it, nor to be kept through it, but rather to be kept out of it. Second, it is the trial. It is not just a time of testing. It is a promise that they will be kept out of the time of testing, the hour of testing. Thirdly, it comes upon the whole world. This is a worldwide tribulation. So I, it's possible both views could be accepted, giving this promise an immediate partial fulfillment in the time of these... Uh, Roman Caesars in that second century and then an ultimate complete fulfillment in the tribulation. 
But I believe this is a promise that believers will not have to go through the tribulation period which will come upon the earth. Anyone who believes the true gospel is true to the gospel and does not stray into some kind of false gospel but believes that the true gospel will not go through the tribulation. Every believer will be kept from the tribulation. Then we would come to the condemnation of the church. But just as in Sardis, the church of Sardis, this was the first church that received no commendation. Philadelphia is the first church that received no condemnation. There is none. Zero. Which is wonderful. Then comes the challenge to the church. Look up. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. We're to be looking for his return. We're to be anticipating his return. We're to be loving his return. We need to prepare. As, as the beloved apostle John says, If you have this hope of Jesus coming back and being like him, then you need to purify yourself as he is pure. But again, I want to highlight these words. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. In 1942, just months after the disastrous attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. faced another major military setback. The Japanese invaders could no longer be held out of the Philippines. And General Douglas MacArthur, after a long and courageous fight, had to withdraw his troops from the Philippines. On March 11, with the waters of the Pacific surf lapping at his cuffs, General MacArthur said, I will return. Two years later, in 1944, General Douglas MacArthur returned and liberated the Philippines. He did what he promised to do. Jesus is promising that he is coming back. Behold, I come quickly. He will do what he promised to do. So be ready. Be prepared. When he comes, he will come swiftly, like a thief in the night. The rapture could occur at any moment. It could happen today. It could happen right now. So he says, look up. And then he says, look, hold on. Hold on to what you have that no one may take your crown. We need to hold on. Hold on. Keep on keeping on. Don't give up. Don't go worry in doing what is right. Hold on. Hold on to your purity in the power of God's Spirit. Hold on to your faith in the commitment to God's Word. Hold on to your love for Christ and commitment to His name. Hold on to the truth of the gospel, the only gospel, the message that everyone needs to hear, that whoever believes in the name of Jesus, that He died for our sins and rose again, will be saved. So hold on to this so that you can hold on to your crown, your eternal rewards for faithfulness. And then in the last verse, verse 12, we see the challenge to the overcomer. The battle lines have been drawn. The Philadelphian church had a little power and a lot of perseverance. Sure, there were, are some in the church that would succumb to pressure and persecution, but others would draw on Christ's power and overcome. To the overcomer, Christ says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of your God, and he shall not go out anymore. 
and I will write the name of my God on him and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. Notice how both rewards are inseparably linked to the character and conduct of the faithful believers in this church. Reward number one, for those who kept the Lord's word, they will be called a pillar in the temple of God. This relates to our position. A pillar is a symbol of stability and support. To be called a pillar is to be recognized as one who is stable and supportive and trustworthy. Those who stand alone on the word of God will be standing as pillars in the temple. The overcomer will be recognized as a pillar in the temple of God. And then reward number two, for those who kept the Lord's name, they will be identified with the name of God. This relates to our person. To have a name written upon you is a mark of identification. The victorious believer will be permanently and publicly identified with God, with the new Jerusalem, and with the new name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be uniquely and permanently identified with the name that they refused to deny. And finally, the call to the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We must personally hear, and we must willingly obey. So the question that comes, since this is such a phenomenal church, such a faithful church, how can we be like the church in Philadelphia? How can we be like the believers in Philadelphia? Number one, faithfully take advantage of God-given opportunities. See them and seize them. Find them and walk through them. Are you overlooking opportunities? They come to all of us. Opportunities to love, to encourage, to help, to give. Opportunities to reach out, to befriend a person, to show hospitality. Opportunities to invite someone to a church activity or to share the gospel. Opportunities to work with the youth or the children or in a nursery. Opportunities to serve in, in, in a mission field or on a mission committee. Opportunities to teach or to mentor or to disciple others. Opportunities to invest your time, talents, and treasures at your church. A pastor shared the following story, and his point is clear. Here's what he said. I know that all of you were saddened to learn this week of the death of one of our church's most valuable members. That member's name was someone else. Someone's passing created a vacancy that will be difficult to fill. Someone else had been with us for many years, and for every one of those years, someone was expected to do far more than the normal person's share of the work. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, a group to lead, some ministry to work in, one name was mentioned more than any other, as many people said, let someone else do it. It was common knowledge that Someone else was among the largest givers in the church. Whenever there was a financial need, everyone assumed that someone else would make up the difference. Were the truth known, everyone expected too much of someone else. Now someone else is gone. 
we wonder what we're going to do. Someone else left a wonderful example to follow, but who's going to follow it? Who's going to do the things everyone expected someone else to do? Remember, we cannot depend on someone else to do it anymore. You need to step up to the plate and take advantage of the opportunities God is placing before you. Number two, faithfully tap into the power of the Spirit. Triumph through trust. Like David, we should say the battle is the Lord's. We need to tap into the power of God. Paul once said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things God wants me to do through the strength that God gives to me. The Lord is seeking those whose hearts are right towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. Are you holding back because you feel like you're too weak or the task is too big? God is faithful, and his grace and power are available to those who call upon him. Tap into his power. Number three, faithfully study and obey the word. Paul told Timothy to read the word, teach the word, preach the word, give himself wholly to the word. Satan corrupts God's word. The world rejects God's word. Critics subtract from God's word. Progressives add to God's word. Liberals devalue God's word. But the growing Christian is committed to God's word. Consequently, the growing Christian loves God's word, desires God's word, reads God's word, studies God's word, meditates on God's word, treasures God's word, and obeys God's word. God's word is alive and powerful, inspired and profitable, accurate and authoritative. We must practice what we preach. Our walk should master our town. Number four, faithfully stand for Jesus' name. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the resurrection life. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through him. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the gospel. This is the word of Christ's endurance, that Jesus died for our sins and Jesus rose from the dead. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the true gospel, and we must keep the true gospel. We must stay true to the gospel. And then finally, number five, faithfully run the race before you. I'll never forget hearing the story of George Cafigo. It's a great example of faithfully running the race before us. He was a running back. Just before the first half ended in a game against the New York Giants, George Cafigo broke away over the left tackle. He was hit by one man after another, but he just kept going. Finally, five Giants ganged up on him, but he just kept plowing forward. At last... Signaling the end of the first half, the timer's gun fired as he went down. A lady attending her first professional football game cried out, My gosh, they had to shoot him to stop him. What does it take to stop you from running the race God has set before you? Lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin, run with endurance. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Faithfully keep on keeping on. Never give up. The Apostle Paul says very simply in 1 Corinthians 4.2, 
Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. You see, men are looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. God is looking for faithfulness. The believers in the church of Philadelphia were faithful. Will you be faithful? One songwriter put it this way. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Thank you, my friends, for joining me for this episode of Wisdom from Above. We want everyone everywhere to be able to have access to these podcasts. So Wisdom from Above is ad-free and cost-free. There are people out there who are looking for good, solid Bible teaching. Please tell them about Wisdom from Above. I look forward to meeting with you again next week as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. Until then, I wish you a great week and God's blessing. Thank you so much for joining me in this passionate quest for Wisdom from Above.